Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hey, and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Today, we have a great guest coming up, uh, Benjamin Coleman, who's with the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. And Ben has really led an effort to provide innovational ideas within the military, um, the largest institution on the planet, the United States military. Uh, Ben's a naval officer, and we're going to get to him in just a few minutes. But first, I want to thank you for being back here. If you um, are on Facebook, uh, I saw a few uh, new likes this week, and I appreciate uh, you getting on there, uh, liking the page, sharing it with others, maybe sharing some of the blog posts that we're putting up there with others about the various episodes. Uh, Really appreciate some of the shout-outs. And also, I'm getting a lot of great ideas uh, for new guests from uh, many of you. So, uh, starting to build a little queue here and uh, really appreciate uh, learning more about some of these inspiring individuals we're having on the program. And uh, some of them I've started with that I know, and I'm looking really for new people as well that I don't know so that um, we can continue having a, a diverse range of people on this program. And uh, one of the people we had on episode two was musician Amy Gerhartz. And um, uh, Amy, since the time I had her on, we had her at the Rock by the Sea Music Festival, and she's a, a large part of that and really part of the Rock by the Sea family, which promotes um, you know, good musical um, bands and artists uh, that raise money for great charities like the Pediatric Brain Tumor Program at Arnold Palmer Hospital in Orlando and also uh, Camp Sunshine in Atlanta, among others. So Amy, uh, we heard one of her songs on that uh, episode. And I'm going to actually play one of her songs on the end of this episode that'll have a little bit of relationship to um, our guest. Um, You can take with the song what you want, but uh, Amy was a military brat growing up most of her lifetime and spent a lot of time around military people and her family. And uh, I think you'll hear a really thoughtful song about what it's like to miss people that are abroad serving our country with honor and uh, the conflicts that many have with um, you know those going away into the military. But speaking of that, we have a really honorable military guest here on our program today, uh, Benjamin Cole- Coleman, and we're going to get to him right after this. Okay, well, next here on the Agents of Innovation podcast, we have a very interesting guest. In fact, uh, so interesting that it's hard for me to do a proper introduction, so I'm just going to introduce him. Uh, We have uh, Benjamin Coleman, uh, who is a uh, naval officer, and he's going to be headed to business school this fall at Stanford. Um, And that's kind of related to a lot of the things he's been doing lately, introducing uh, innovation within the military. Ben, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Francisco. I appreciate your time. Hey, I appreciate your time because looking at everything you've been up to lately, um, I know your time is limited. And uh, uh, anyway, let's just get into it. So, um, Ben, tell me a little bit about your uh, military service and career. So I started as a newly commissioned officer in 2004 and headed straight to flight school 
traveling the southern United States, ending up as an F-18 pilot, which is the fighter attack aircraft that flies off of aircraft carriers. Um, spent four years in Lemoore, California. Uh, made two deployments, one to Afghanistan for a couple months flying combat missions over that country. Um, from there, I went to San Diego and was an instructor pilot uh, with a, a Marine Corps F-18 squadron called the VMF-18-101 Sharpshooters. And then I got recruited to join the Chief Naval Operations Rapid Innovation Cell. And then I was asked to be the speechwriter for Admiral Gortney, who was the four-star at that time in charge of United States Fleet Forces Command. And now I'm transitioning out. So you're transitioning out. I know you're, uh, you're now in, moving to Dallas for the summer before you head out to Stanford. Uh, so what, um, I know that you are part of, in fact, have started the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. Tell yes, us a little correct. bit about that. So it's kind of a long story and I'll start at the beginning. Um, over the last 12 to 13 years of war, we've seen a lot of very, very innovative ideas come from the lower levels of the military. When you put 25 or 26-year-old platoon commanders who are in charge of 15, upwards of 30, 40 men and women in combat zones, they have to come up with very creative solutions to problems that aren't normally anticipated. And in most of the previous wars we've fought, we've given them very good training to go close with the enemy and kill them. But the environment that we found ourselves in Iraq and Afghanistan were far different in the sense that it wasn't just going you know, face-to-face -face with a terrorist or insurgents or whoever, it really came down to rebuilding societies from scratch. And so the training that we gave these young individuals uh, was not necessarily what they needed to thrive in these environments, not because the training was bad, but simply because it wasn't expected. So you had these young men and women going into villages and helping to reconstruct these <coughs> thousands-year-old cultures economically, politically, culturally, socially. And this required a lot of creativity and innovation to, to make that work. And when these young officers arrived back to the United States after their tours, they were thrust back into a large bureaucracy in the United States military, which has been around for hundreds of years with cultural norms that are very hard to change. And these innovation-minded officers who had to be so adept and agile overseas were now repressed. There was no way for them to put their new ideas forward and get it through the, the very long-lasting military bureaucracy. And so a couple of us wanted to figure out why this was and how we could reshape the conversation such that these innovative-minded military officers could once again have influence, but here in the States, within the large bureaucracy. And uh, when I arrived in San Diego after my first three years, um, I was finally in an environment that really appreciated entrepreneurship on the civilian side. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine named Brian Ferguson, who's a Navy SEAL. And over beers, we started talking about what it would take to see the success that our peers were having in the military. And we thought that if we brought military uh, innovators together with civilian entrepreneurs, and exchange best practices and ideas that would um, that would really move the conversation forward. And so we started a group called Disruptive Thinkers, which soon grew in the San Diego area, and it kind of was the launching point for a whole bunch of other ventures. Well, you know, this is interesting because a lot of us, you know, have this conception of the military that it's a you know 
Um, obviously, the United States military is the most powerful force on the planet. Uh, has you know just done amazing things, um, but uh, you know there's still a, it's a huge bureaucracy, right? So that's what you guys are tackling, and this is also different, you know, for this podcast. You know, we I mostly talk to entrepreneurs, and when you we think of entrepreneurs, we think of people out, you know, doing startups and or small businesses or, or running uh, things in the private sector. But uh, the reason I wanted to have you on because you're doing something very entrepreneurial within the military. Within, you know, we sometimes we maybe forget. You know, the military is part of the larger government, <laughs> the most uh, most important part, perhaps, of the federal government uh, protecting its citizens. So, um, but what is that like uh, inside the military um, when you're gonna, you know, you're the military is responsible for national security and you're trying to disrupt things. What what was what was the uh, reaction when you first approached people about this? So it's mixed. Um, I would argue that the disruption actually encourages national security to be maintained, and I, the area you see the most disruption again is in combat because lives are at stake, and rapid adaptation has to occur if survival is to to take hold. Um, you see most of the military innovations occurring in the middle of combat. Um, an example from my own background, uh, well, I guess historical background, I'm a I'm fighter pilot, and one of our uh, leading lights, if you will, was a guy named Jimmy Thatch, who created the Thatch Weave. And in the beginning of World War II, the Americans had a far inferior carrier-based fighter aircraft than the Japanese did. And the Japanese also had uh, better pilots because their pilots had been flying combat. But Jimmy Thatch realized that if you got a Japanese Zero um, with another of your wingmen, so you had two American fighters against one Japanese fighter, and you executed a series of maneuvers, which then which became known as the Thatch Weave, that you could actually take out this Japanese fighter, and uh, that that helped in a small way turn the tide of the Pacific um, in that innovative mindset. And in every war we've been in, there's had to be uh, disruptors who are challenging the status quo and getting the military to do things they don't want to do. Earlier you mentioned that the United States military is the most powerful force on the planet, but if you think about it, we, as the most technologically advanced and the most expensive military on the planet, have also been nearly defeated by literal first millennial, first millennia culture that relies on homemade bombs, um, no, no air force, uh, barely a standing army, and just a loose network of insurgents and terrorists, and they have run the circles around us. So despite all of our technology and money, we haven't won the wars of the past 12 years. Um, and that, that does require uh, disruption and new ideas to come to the fore if national security truly is to be maintained. Sure. And you mentioned uh, you know, some of the challenges we've had with some of the foes we face abroad, and even on the homeland for that matter. Uh, what have there, have there been any specific instances or uh, uh, people you've known that have you know faced some of these foes and maybe didn't make it out or, or were injured? Anything that kind of inspired you personally along the way to to kind of engage in this uh, disruptive thinking? Um, not not so personal in that sense. Um, I've been fortunate in that none of my close friends uh, made the ultimate sacrifice. Although I do know people who have died in the line of service. Um, what really inspired me, though, was an independent study I did in my senior year of college with a guy named Captain Dan Moore, 
who was also an F-18 pilot and at the time was my commanding officer at Northwestern, the Northwestern ROTC, and I went to college. And he took me and another midshipman aside, and we started the works of Colonel John Boyd, who was an Air Force uh, fighter pilot in the 1960s and 70s. And if there's one book I recommend that all of your listeners read who are interested in innovation, it's called The Fighter Pilot Who Changed the Art of War. And John Boyd is this larger-than-life character who um, transformed the way the military approaches problems. Uh, ironically, for the Air Force, who was his father's service, uh, the Marine Corps actually embraced him more. And if you remember back to the Gulf War in 1991, the famed left hook where the Americans fainted um, with an amphibious assault against Kuwait, and in actuality it took the Army units and Marine Corps um, tank units through the left part of Iraq, basically going off the map. That was devised and philosophized by John Boyd at the behest of then Secretary of Defense um, Dick Cheney and President Bush. So he, he basically created what we now call fourth generation war, third generation warfare and fourth generation warfare. But anyway, going through his works was just a phenomenal exposure to um, how you can be a, an agent for change. And one of the quotes that sticks out of my mind that John Boyd uh, always says is you have a choice in life. You can either choose to be or to do. And many people choose to be in the sense that they uh, pursue accolades and honors and the right degrees and the right checks in the block. But to do is something far more, um, far more useful. Um, you may have to sacrifice your career to do the right thing, but at the end of the day, those who do and who stay, take a stand for what they believe is right often make a bigger difference. And so that really inspired me to look to challenge what was then the shibboleths of, of national security, specifically in the Navy, and try to push us to more a more agile Silicon Valley approach. Not necessarily replacing the philosophies of Silicon Valley with those of the DOD, but getting us thinking of it in a mindset that would allow us to uh, rapidly adapt to the foes that we would invariably face in the 21st century. No, that's uh, that's really interesting. Well, when you think about the history of the entire, mil you know, the United States military history going back to the Revolutionary War, um, I mean, our nation has adapted, you know, um, depending on the enemy. And uh, but what you're talking about now is um, much more rapid uh, response. Um, and uh, well, give me some examples of uh, have there been any uh, changes uh, specifically that have been uh, implemented. Uh, uh, by, you know, uh, you and your group uh, recommendations uh, within the military? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to give a brief example of how things have changed, maybe not for the better, um, if you look at World War II and even the early days of the Cold War, it would take maybe two or three years to field a brand new aircraft. But now we have the Joint Strike Fighter, which was initially conceived of in 1995 and went on the drawing board in the late uh, 1990s. We still, 20 years later, do not have a fully operational JSF, Joint Strike Fighter wing, um, and the cost has just spiraled out of control. Um, so again, 20 years later, we don't have our next generation fighter. Um, and that, that definitely has to change. So what we have done through two organizations, the first of which is an official uh, Navy entity called the Chief Naval Operations Rapid Innovation Cell, and the second one of which is unofficial, the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, have given voice to some of the younger thought leaders within the service and also given them opportunities to specifically change the paradigm. Um, so I'll give you one technological example and then one um, broader philosophical example. The first is a project I spearheaded called Print the Fleet. And our idea was to 
outfit uh, deployable warships with 3D printers, uh, which 3D printing has been around for a long time. The Navy's even been using it for the past couple of decades, but no one had thought to put the technology in the hands of the sailors themselves and let them come up with new capabilities. And so we did a little bit of uh, a guerrilla warfare of our own and managed to put a 3D printer on the USS Essex, which is a San Diego-based amphibious assault ship. Think of it as a mini aircraft carrier um, in association with the Defense Advanced Research Progress Agency and then uh, Navy Medicine, actually, who has one of the most robust 3D printing capabilities in the world. Um, but we, we put this on the ship, and the, the sailors loved it, and now it is an official Navy program of record um, run by a three-star admiral in the Pentagon. And the goal eventually is to outfit every ship in the fleet with 3D printers, which would drastically reduce our logistical footprint and allow us to operate in areas of the world that um, are very challenging to reach logistically. You know, if you think about the Pacific Ocean, uh, it is a vast expanse of, of water. And to resupply a carrier battle group is an immense undertaking. And while 3D printing can't replace everything, it can at least provide some solutions in case of cut supply lines in the middle of war. Um, but we've seen massive success there, and that came from a half-million-dollar project, which in terms of, of DOD budgets is a, is a simple drop in the budget, but it's helped to reshape our whole thinking and energy. Uh, the second comes from another colleague of mine named Josh Steinman. So in our, in our uh, CNO Rapid Innovation Cell Travels, we had the opportunity to visit a lot of uh, civilian organizations, including those in Silicon Valley. We happened to meet with a couple of military representatives who were now retired, and they mentioned that the, the DOD, Defense, Defense Department, does a very poor job of engaging Silicon Valley. Um, most of the engagements by senior officers are just junkets. The, the four-star flies in, shakes a few hands, gets his picture at the Facebook headquarters and calls it good. He's all of a sudden, you know, this, this modern thinking general, if you will. Um, but Silicon Valley is built on relationships and enduring bonds and, and uh, engagement with, with people that know each other. Um, so we wanted to create a, a DOD outpost in Silicon Valley. So we met, uh, Josh Diamond spearheaded this. He wrote up a, a one-page white paper and uh, actually pitched it at uh, the unofficial event, the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, back in October. Got some pretty good reviews, but through Josh's tenacity, he managed to route this one-page briefing through the Navy, through the Cybercom, Admiral Rogers, who's in charge of NSA, finally to the desk of Undersecretary, or Deputy Secretary Work, who loved it so much, he briefed Secretary Carter, the new, Deputy, or the new Secretary of Defense. And uh, if you remember, a couple months ago, Secretary Carter went to Silicon Valley for the first time in, I think, 15 years and unveiled the Defense Innovation Unit, which is exactly what Josh and I had envisioned about two years ago. And so they're taking uh, Naval and Army and Air Force reservists who are in the Valley and forming a cohesive cadre of permanent presence there that can be the direct liaison with Silicon Valley. So those two examples are just a couple of many that our young band of innovators have managed to push on DOD. And uh, it's, it's a, a small anecdote. Um, this chief naval operations, who's the senior uh, officer in the Navy, actually uses us as a case study in the sense that they, the, all the, all the, chair, all the uh, members of the Joint Chiefs get together uh, in a thing called the tank. So the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the vice chairman, all the service chiefs get together. And Admiral Greener, who's the chief naval operations, he frequently brags about us to the other um, other service chiefs. And after one of these sessions, the other service chiefs basically said, we have to get ourselves one of these organizations because they saw the outsized impact that a couple of junior officers, and I say couple, it was about 15 of us, were having on the culture of innovation at large. Um, 
And one last thing I'll add is the Secretary of the Navy himself just spearheaded the, the Task Force Innovation Movement, which has taken the next year and focused on bringing innovation to the fleet. And I think it's attributable to the efforts of uh, our band of, of disruptors over the past four or five years, pushing this relentlessly and making the leadership realize that we need to have a new paradigm when it comes to defense innovation. Well, that's uh, super cool that you guys, I mean, just just 15 of you or so put together these ideas um, and uh, made, I mean, what was pretty enormous change there, what you just described. Um, and uh, let me ask you, the, the, those of you that are involved, the 15 or so, uh, what are, are, you, are they mostly officers or um, what, are the, what are the general backgrounds uh, and career backgrounds in the military? Yeah, so we've tried to get community, community diversity as best we can. So we have uh, special warfare people, naval aviators, submariners, intelligence officers, medical corps officers, uh, judge advocate general people. We, we also realize that it's not just the officer corps but the enlisted corps that has incredibly valuable ideas. We've recruited some of them to come join us. But the real power of the organization isn't just in the 15 of us who, are, who were official CRIC members. It really comes in this broader network that we created of uh, we call it Crick X, and this is a group of about two or three hundred folks who have voluntarily chosen to be part of this uh, this listserv, if you will, and and other networking opportunities. Such that if someone has a problem, they have an idea or some other thing that they want to integrate, they can blast an email out to this collection of individuals, and as a result, they get they get access to a, a whole network of influencers that people can tap into outside their traditional networks. And it's really this power of loose ties that's helped to transform the Navy in and of itself. And we took that model and translated it to the national security apparatus as a whole. And so we built the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum to capture not just the Navy, but to capture all the other services as well as the other agencies to have this conversation in an environment that would resonate with our generation of leaders. So the things that influenced us in building the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum were events like Startup Weekend and TEDx and, and TED events. So we built a conference around this, this model, uh, very different than anything you'll find anywhere else in the DOD. We focus on young, ambitious, uh, bright innovators who have ideas that would never get an airing, give them 20 minutes to pitch their idea and uh, in, a, in an audience of, of fellow innovators. And then at the end of the event, we host a funded competition. So anybody can get us with last grade eight folks, pitch an idea, and the winner I got a $5,000 cash prize they could do with whatever they want. And $5,000 isn't that much in the grand scheme of things, but for a military and, and national security-focused event, then the government doesn't give prizes for ideas, nor do people fund government employees for coming up with good ideas. We believe, though, that prize models are actually very useful in eliciting ideas, but also incentivizing people to, to take their ideas to the next step. And this has created an entire culture and ecosystem within the Defense Department and National Security where innovation is okay. We've, we've brought together these disparate, um, uh, these disparate uh, innovators who felt alone by themselves and now brought them together to become greater than the sum of their different parts. So uh, it's been a pretty cool thing to see this, this movement developing, uh, but we're making some good progress. And when did you say this all started? So the, the CNO Rapid Innovation Cell started in the summer of 2013 and the first Defense Entrepreneurs Forum was held in the fall of 2013. Well, that's very cool that you've gotten this start. I mean, just in the last couple of years, um, and uh, I don't know how much uh, press attention you all have received from this. Have anybody uh, highlighted what's going on here? We've had a bit. Um, a lot of the internal service newspapers have covered the crook extensively. 
um, play a lot of defense uh, journals, Defense One and Military Times, and these these entities have. Uh, we got a brief mention in the Wall Street Journal once, but uh, we're working on some of the bigger media hits. Um, what I found though is, you know, as movements start to gain steam, they take on a life of their own. And as the movement grows, things slowly develop until they just explode. Look at, you know, the Confederate flag kerfuffle over the past couple of weeks or even um, the gay marriage, you know, explosion the past couple of years. You know, agree or disagree with those positions, those have been cultivated for decades. And all of a sudden it takes a, a trigger event to make them happen. The same with military innovation. Um, this has been cultivating for years and years. And finally, there's been a couple of triggering events where all of a sudden we have a huge deluge of opportunity, and uh, the story is getting out, and, uh, and, and big things are happening. Well, um, I don't want to take too much of your time, but just a, a final question or two, uh, Ben. Uh, you mentioned uh, Silicon Valley and the relationship the Defense Department is tried to build, but also what you all are trying to do, maybe perhaps as a bridge between that. Um, the forums that you've just described have been mostly you know, um, innovators within the military, what uh, uh, what opportunities have there been to engage people outside the military, say in Silicon Valley, um, with with those in the military? So integral to all the efforts I just mentioned are engaging with people outside of our circles because we have so much to learn from other cultures, and I don't mean cultures, you know, ethnographically, but rather um, uh, professionally that we need to do as much as we can to engage with them. That's why we have specifically chosen to travel and visit civilians in their place of work, uh, going to the Apples and the Googles and the Facebooks and Boston Dynamics and companies in Austin and, and Seattle, meeting them on their turf, be, not going in uniform, um, engaging in informal conversations, learning about their day-to-day -day activities. Um, same with the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. We have, it's not just veterans and active duty folks, it's people in the entrepreneur community who want to engage with with ambitious and, and uh, large-minded individuals. So that, that's critical going forward, and especially with Silicon Valley, you look at things like the OPM hack, where basically the Chinese come in and steal 16 million personnel records, um, including entire databases on people's whereabouts. And this is, this is a concern that's not just within government, but you know, cybersecurity is something that's gonna have to be a whole of society solution. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to be a massive uh, discovery, but it's going to take cooperation between um, the, the private industry and government to really stem the tide and figure out what the rules of engagement are, if there are even any. And this is, this is completely new territory for us. Um, just as an aside, one of the challenges the DOD faces is that to recruit an effective cyber workforce may mean loosening some of the very strict physical standards that we are under right now. Um, it's important to run a very quick mile and do 20 pull-ups, et cetera, if you're going to be an infantry officer running through the woods. But if you are conducting cyber warfare, you may not have to have those same characteristics. Um, and there's, that's, that's a really interesting and arduous debate going on right now within our own service. How do we bring them into the fold? Furthermore, you have a huge trust gap between the Valley and, um, and, and government. How do you bridge that gap? How do you find common um, common goals that can be pursued um, to help bridge some of these technological challenges. And that, that's one of the areas I'm passionate about. And hopefully in business school and beyond, I'll be able to engage in those areas and, and figure out where the confluence of private sector and public policy is when it comes to technology integration. 
but that, that's a challenge we have to figure out, and engagement in Silicon Valley is absolutely vital to that. Well, that's pretty cool. I like how you described how you, you guys are going in and kind of learning about the cultures within, within organizations and companies and seeing the type of innovative, you know, innovative things companies have to do to stay competitive and, uh, and efficient and kind of bringing that into uh, the military. Um, and then also uh, I liked kind of the flip side of that, you know, how can they benefit from their relationship um, with, you know, innovators within the military uh, when you describe cybersecurity and things like that, which definitely all companies and government, of course, is uh, really concerned about. Um, what uh, what can if, – if folks are listening to this uh, episode here and they uh, want to engage with you, um, what where can they go? Where can they visit? And uh, how can they learn more? I think the best way to engage is simply type in Defense Entrepreneurs Forum into Google. Uh, you'll come to our website, defenseentrepreneurs.org. There's a newsletter you can sign up with. You can also see some of the, the past talks that have been given by these emerging national security leaders that span the gamut of design thinking within DOD space to um, you know war fighting from a pacifist perspective. We have all these, all these great young individuals with, with great ideas that we've, we've helped to highlight and showcase. And that's a, that's a good way to kind of see what your military and what your national security ecosystem is doing to put forward a more robust and agile innovation infrastructure. Uh, furthermore, just, just follow what's happening with Secretary Carter's Force of the Future initiative and, uh, and the new Navy, uh, defense personnel chief uh, Carson's ideas on talent management and completely reshaping the paradigm and how the military promotes and recruits uh, 21st century warriors. Because it's, it's, what we're doing now is not working. Um, but we have to be more agile and kind of adopt some of these methodologies that have been utilized by our very successful civilian counterparts and, and leverage them for our benefit. Well, that's just great. Um, and those, uh, those talks you mentioned, are those sort of the TED-style talks, the TEDx-style talks? They are, yep, 10 to 20 minutes. Uh, they're quick to the point, um, very engaging. Uh, I recommend Jesse Mooberries and, uh, and Josh Marcuse, who's a DOD civilian on design thinking. Um, very, very new ways of thinking about the world that, that Silicon Valley has already embraced, but that could really pay big dividends for, for us in the military. Well, Ben, uh, I really want to thank you for being on the podcast. And of course, thank you for your service and everything you're doing for our country. Um, you're going above and beyond as well and uh, providing a lot of innovative ideas uh, for our armed forces. And uh, we look forward to seeing what's next for you as you uh, embrace business school in Silicon Valley at Stanford. And uh, we'll just uh, keep tabs on you. But uh, I want to thank you uh, for being on the podcast. If you have any uh, last-minute uh, comments you want to make, uh, go ahead. No, I appreciate your time, Francisco, and uh, best wishes with your adventure here. Thank you so much, Ben. Yep.
you. 